Okay. Okay. All right. So we were discussing Chachma. And there were two sides to Chachma. On the one hand, there's the relationship of Chachma with Hashem. And on the other hand, there's the relationship of Chachma with the rest of the soul. Right? And every godly soul regardless of what level, what temperament, what world it, it's native to, all has some aspect, some degree of Chachma. And there were these two things. One hand, what is Chachma's relationship with Hashem? And second, what is Chachma's relationship with the rest of the soul? So does anyone remember what, what is Chachma's relationship with Hashem? It is being enlivened by Hashem? No, no. That's Chachma enlivens the rest of the soul. But Wait, you said about... that enlivens Chachma and Chachma enlivens the soul and the soul enlivens the body. No, let's, let's look back. If you look back in the text, it says that Hashem is in the Chachma. In other words, that Chachma, Chachma is like an emptiness that Hashem inhabits, right? So Chachma itself doesn't really, it's what we were struggling with yesterday. Chachma itself isn't really, it's just like empty space. It's hard to describe empty space itself. What can you describe at empty space? Like think physically for a second. If you're going to describe an empty space, what are you describing? A place that's like devo- like devoid of anything. Okay, so you're, like, you can describe what it's lacking, and you can also describe what it allows, right? Like it doesn't have anything in the room, but the room is 12 feet by 12 feet, so it can fit something that's 144 square feet worth of stuff, right? You can describe what's not there and what it allows to be there. You can't actually directly describe it itself. So Chachma is like this emptiness that the godly light um, illuminates and resides within. And then, additionally, the Chochmah enlivens the rest of the soul. So that would mean, in essence, it's the godly light, it's Hashem within the Chochmah that's enlivening the soul. But it doesn't say in the text that that Hashem enlivens the Chochmah, because the Chochmah, and this is what's weird about it, is Chochmah is not really, it's not really distinct from Hashem as an entity. Like again, just think about the analogy of you have light shining into a room through an open window, right? The open window and the emptiness of the room that allows the light to be there, it's not 
reacting or interacting with the light. It's just allowing the light to be present. Okay. And so then, what? So it's kind of like a tool. It's a vessel. It's a, it's a vessel, right? Right. It's a vessel. Now, now what I want, what, what's interesting about, I'm glad you brought this up, is that in a vessel, generally speaking, in Hasidus, we, we divide a vessel into two parts. There's what's called the inner vessel and the outer vessel. Okay, so we think of a cup. What is the inner part of the vessel? The inside of the cup. The inside of the cup. Now, what is the inside of the cup made of? The material of the cup. No, it's not. Space. Empty space. The inside of the cup is, the, is made of nothing. It's what allows the, say in my case, the, the coffee to be present, right? So the inside, of the, the inside of the vessel is actually an emptiness, a receptivity. What is the external vessel? The Using the example of a coffee cup, what would the external vessel be? The cup itself. Right, the, fit, right, the, like, the actual physical you know, cup, in this case, I think this is made of plastic. Okay, so the plastic. Now, what's the difference between the plastic and the emptiness is that the emptiness is what allows something to be there. The plastic is what allows you to interact with it. Right? You can pick up the coffee cup, see? Wow. Okay. So now, what's interesting about Chachma is that Chachma is basically just entirely the inner part of the vessel. It's just the emptiness, okay? There's a fancy word for this in Hasidus. It's called bittel. So what does bittel mean in this context? Not in every context, in this context. That you nullify yourself or whatever to... Um, to allow space for Hashem? Well, see, no, because you said nullifying yourself. Chachma doesn't have to nullify itself. It is an emptiness. It's not, see, that's why their nullification is not really the best way of translating because it's not like you're, you're not nullifying something. It's just, it's open and receptive to God. It's just the openness. It's just the emptiness. It's not something that has to like overcome itself and subjugate itself and subdue itself and nullify itself. It is intrinsically open and receptive to God. Well, again, think about, think about an open space physically. The open space doesn't have to nullify itself to allow the light to shine there. It's empty. Emptiness intrinsically allows light to shine. Okay? But then there's this thing is that this emptiness, it's not just a... a, 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 a it has a it has a it has an energy to it, it has a power to it and that it enlivens the rest of the soul and so what's within this emptiness which is the shem therefore is really enlivening the rest of the soul now the fact that it enlivens the rest of the soul as we're going to see in 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 chapter 19 is actually somewhat complicated. It's not a foregone and automatic conclusion that the Chachma actually enlivens the rest of the soul so simply. Okay? 
if you want to think about what we spoke about yesterday, right? Just because you have a soul, does that mean you're actually being enlivened? If, remember, and being enlivened means the thriving, the flourishing, the, 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 the bringing out and manifesting of your true self. Is everybody, just because they have a soul, truly being enlivened by it? No. Similarly, as we'll learn in chapter 19, the godly soul being enlivened by the Chachma, and therefore with the godly light, with Hashem who resides in the Chachma, is actually a much more complicated issue. But we're going to save that for chapter 19, okay? Now, the, the, what we're going to have here in the rest of the chapter, we're going to skip the bracketed section, is we're going to describe the chachma and its effect on the person. Okay? Now, before we go forward, I want to be clear. These are descriptions. Okay? What is the purpose of a description? To give you some information. Okay. What is the difference between a description versus an argument? An argument seems to say that there is a, another point of view and that you're sort of um, stating that the point of view that you're saying is the correct one, whereas describing is sort of just saying, you know, this is, this is what's going on. And Right. Okay. Now this, by the way, before we get in the text, this is a mistake that happens a lot when people are talking. Okay. So let's say we're having a conversation about something and I start bringing examples. Okay. Is the purpose of those examples to prove that my, what I'm trying to say is correct to convince you out of a different way of thinking about it? Or is it because I'm concerned you might not really understand what I think and so I'm trying to use these examples to make it more concrete to you, to make it clearer to you. But you realize that, that often there's this miscommunication that happens, that someone brings an example, not trying to convince the other person that you have to accept my point of view or that I'm right, but just so you understand what I think, what I, how I understand things, right? So it's not being brought as evidence, it's being brought to demonstrate, okay? I had a high school teacher who, um, who taught my four favorite classes. They were called debate, small group discussion, argumentation, and speech. So my four favorite classes in high school. And one thing that he drilled into us over and over and over again was it's very important to be clear, both you as the speaker and as the listener, when an example is being brought, why is the person bringing this example? Is they, are, they, are, they, are they resting the veracity of their claim on this example? So if you tack the example, now they're being challenged. This is an argument in favor of their position. Or is this to take something abstract and make it more concrete and relatable? And so it, the, the, the key difference here is that the idea, if the idea depends on the example or not, these are demonstrations. These are ways of illustrating it. The Altareb is not going to be using these things as arguments to prove that Chachma exists. What is the Altareb's 
argument that we all have Chachma. So before we go into the description of the Chachma and its effect on us, what was the argument that we all have Chachma? That every Jew has some little spark of Chachma within them? Does anyone remember? We went over it yesterday. I'll, 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 I'll go it over again in short. Every soul, every soul, godly soul, I mean, because it comes from holiness, can it be only one isolated property or does it have to in some way integrate all 10 spheres? Because the nature of holiness is to be whole, to be unified and to be integrated, right? So even if your, sphere, even if your soul is temperamentally not a chachma sphere, chachma soul, but it would have to have that. And because the different layers of worlds are, imb- are embedded one in the other, even a lower level soul has within it the corresponding higher level. So every soul has a chachma of its world, which means every soul has the highest level of chachma. And the verse says that Hashem resides in chachma. He quoted some verses. So that kind of argument is it's the argument based on the metaphysics of mysticism, of Kabbalah. Is he making an argument based on our empirical experience? Was he saying, this phenomenon proves that you have a godly soul and this proves that you have Chachmah? Is that what he said? No, he started off by working with a premise that he knows from mystical revelation you have a godly soul. The nature of godliness that it's integrated and holistic. That lower levels embody higher levels. And that the verse says that Chachmah is unique in that A, it, uh, God resides in it, and B, it enlivens those that possess it. And from this, he concluded that every soul has a little spark of chachma in which God resides that can, at least in principle, enliven the rest of their soul. It's an argument based on the metaphysics of mysticism. It's not grounded on our actual experience. Which actually means there's a necessity to demonstrate, to describe, to explain what this actually means in think human experience, because right now it's very abstract. Okay, so the argument that God resides in the Chachman or soul and via the Chachman can enliven the rest of the soul, that's based on revelation. The description we're going to now read. Okay, and the reason why I'm saying this is because you'll often hear some of these things being used by well-meaning Chabad rabbis and rabbitsons to prove that you have a godly soul or, or Chachman or godliness within you. Um, and I just want you to realize that as you read the original text to see that he's not using these to prove or argue that, it's the reverse. He's already argued it, and now he wants to describe it to make it a little more concrete. Okay. Now, Chachma, wisdom, is the source of intelligence and comprehension, and it is above Bina, which is intellectual understanding and comprehension. Whereas Chachma is above them and their source. Okay, so what's the first thing he says about Chachma, just generally, to help us understand a little more what Chachma is? He says that it is the source of intelligence and comprehension, but it's above intelligence and comprehension. But what does that mean? What does it mean that it's the source of comprehension, but it's above comprehension? 
I'm going to ask you a question, okay? And to make this to make this clear, I'm going to I'm going to also probably end up using the chat to make it a little bit clearer. Okay. First off, has anyone here experienced prophecy? Okay. No, because I want to talk about something you have no direct experience of. So you can't just like say, well, in real life, that's how it works. So you don't know because you've never experienced it. Okay. Now, what we're going to do is like this. Okay. Moshe. Actually, we're not going to use Moshe. Moshe is too controversial. We'll use Shmuel. Shmuel was a greater prophet. than Yeshaya. Okay? That makes sense? You have two prophets, Shmuel, and we're talking about prophecy. Shmuel's greater than Yeshaya. Good? Okay. Rabbi? Yes. Can you just clarify in what way you mean greater? No, I'm specifically using an example that I cannot, nor you cannot, neither of us can describe what we mean by greater. That's the purpose of using prophecy as an example. Because if we what could, I, then this example won't work. What? What kind of claim is this? Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm just, you, can, you can accept that the claim could, you can accept that that's the claim. It's either true or false, but let's just accept that that's a claim you made. Shmuel's greater than Yeshaya. Okay. Yeshaya is greater than Yechezkel as a prophet. Okay. Now, my question to you is who is a greater prophet, Shmuel or Yechezkel? Given that those two statements are true, they may not be true, but let's assume that they are. Please demonstrate, please conclude from those two statements who is a greater prophet, Shmuel or, or Yechezkel? Shmuel. How do you know? Because Shmuel is greater than Yeshaya and Yeshaya is greater than Yechezkel. Yeah, but you so, just repeated back to me what I said. I want you to, I don't, I, I don't, I don't see that at all. Like, explain to me, why is Shmuel greater than? Than Yechezkel. I understand that Shmuel is greater than Yeshai. I understand that Yeshai is greater than Yechezkel. But why does that mean that Shmuel is greater than Yechezkel? Well, it's assuming that the measurement that you're grading them on is consistent throughout both. Yes, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm assuming that. That we mean greater in the same way. Yes. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Can someone please tell me how they figured out that Shmuel is greater than Yechezkel? It's like a, it's a um, logical, it's a logic, it's a principle of logic, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's a principle of logic that is that like one, a dogma, of, wait a second, is that a dogma of your particular religion? You know, like, I don't know, like in the Catholic creed, you've got this, this, this thing called logic and you have certain principles that you just believe and I'm supposed to accept your principles of logic? That's very I'm dogmatic. Of you. No, I'm trying no, to ask you not... a reasonable question. Can you please explain to me? And you give me something. And you get fancy words. Principles of logic. Like, what's one of you and me? Just tell me. How did you figure out that Shmuel is greater than Yechezkel? Because I don't get it.
Well, if you're using the same measure to measure the greatness, yeah. then if Shmuel is greater than Yeshaya, right? So we've accepted that. Yeah, and that Yeshaya is greater than Yechezgal. Right. So if it's the same measures, then Yeshaya is greater than Yechezgal by a certain measure. But because Shmuel's great, um, because Shmuel's greater than Yeshaya, it still makes Shmuel greater, if that makes sense. No, that's the thing I want you to explain to me. You just repeated, like, like you just repeated the thing that, I understand, if Shmuel's greater than Yeshaya, and then Yeshaya's greater than Yechezkel, somehow you are all magically certain that Shmuel must be greater than Yechezkel, but I don't see how you came to that conclusion. Can you please explain it to me? I think that this is something we can refer to as the transitive property. Oh, so if we give it a fancy name, now I'm supposed to just accept what you say. If you okay. understand what it means. So I was saying, so, so I'm saying, so, so if I, you know, I have a special rule that says when I clap my hand three times, you turn into a pumpkin and I call it, the pumpkin rule. Does that make it make more sense because we give it a fancy name? No. So calling it the transitive rule doesn't help me understand. Anyone want to explain? I don't get it. I don't know. Maybe it's the order that you wrote the names in that makes it greater or not. Okay, do you know why this is frustrating? You're choosing not to understand. <laughs> Close. You're right. This is this is something called the principle of logic, and it's known as the transitive property. Okay. The problem with all of these so-called principles of logic and transitive properties is either you see the truth in them or you don't. But if you don't, you cannot get to based on something else explain why it should be true. Okay. And this is what is incredibly frustrating when you see the truth of, I'm just pretending, I'm just playing along as if I don't, right? But this can happen in real life where you can see something is true and the other person can't. And you can literally turn your face blue trying to explain yourself and it doesn't work because explanation presupposes that you already have a certain sense of the truth of the matter. How do you know which, quote, principles of logic make sense and which ones don't? This is part of why I choose not to discuss politics with people. Because people yeah, go, come from, yeah. people view politics from a certain um, standpoint. And oftentimes they, they're sort of, their mind is working in a certain way and they're not open to seeing it from a different perspective. Right. Now, I want to differentiate two things. In politics, um, or three things. In politics, we have group identity. We have emotion, which is a different idea. And we have first principles. Okay. Now, the only one that would parallel the idea that we're talking about here is first principles. So let's say, okay, we're talking, we're having a political discussion, and we are talking about something that, that there's no group identity wrapped up in. Okay. It's that kind of issue, whatever it is. And we are not emotionally 
biased. In other words, we don't emotionally bias the outcome of a certain position because it benefits us, nor are we emotionally biased that we care so much about winning the argument we're willing to be stubborn, okay? Now, granted, this is a little bit hypothetical because very few discussions are like this. But let's, we can still have the following problem. That what you see as fundamentally a moral imperative, I don't see as a moral imperative, just in principle. And so the very starting place that you're working off to try and explain why we should or shouldn't do certain things, to me, just sounds like gibberish. Because I don't see the principle you're working off. And I'll give you a very simple example, okay? There is a principle. There is a principle that um, called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism means what? What does egalitarianism mean? The woman is equal in her role to the man. Well, that's if you apply it to gender. It doesn't have to be gender. What would it mean if it, 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 egalitarianism doesn't have to be necessarily towards gender? But if, if it, what does egalitarianism mean? It means that it means that we, people, right? We treat everybody as equals with regard to all factors. That's that's basically what egalitarianism means. Okay, that we don't break people up into classes and treat different classes differently. Whether those classes are by anything from gender to religion to whatever to economic station whatever it is okay now this might be hard to accept but there are some people that egalitarianism just doesn't sound right like like it's not like how do we make a more egalitarian society it's like why should we want to make a more egalitarian society that just seems like that seems immoral not moral so if you see the morality of egalitarianism and someone else sees immorality of egalitarianism, where are you supposed to go from there? Right? It's like the same ridiculous conversation we have here. So there's this sense that we have that, that certain things we just sense as self-evidently true. Okay? And it's based on the things that appear to us to be self-evidently true, we then start to try to make sense of things. So for instance, when we say we should use logic to make sense of things, that's because logic, the principles of logic seem self-evidently true to you, right? The transitive property, for example, that, that I was being annoying about, okay? If we, if the same self-truths are self-evident to both of us, we can then have a discussion and a debate and a disagreement that's productive about, you know, convincing each other and trying to grasp other things. But if we're working off of what, what I see as fundamentally and self-evidently true is not what you see as fundamentally and self-evidently true, then we can't come to any mutual understanding. The best we can have is the realization that the other person is acting in good faith based on what seems enough to be self-evidently true, but that's as far as you can go. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, Bina is what we would call intelligence. So what is the beginning of Bina? The beginning of Bina is what we call an idea. An idea is something you can understand, 
you can comprehend, you can modify, you can analyze, you can contrast with other ideas, right? There's a lot of stuff you can do with ideas, right? Chachma is what's before ideas. In other words, in fact, once you're able to put something as a principle and articulate it as a principle, you've already put it, moved it out of the realm of Chachma. You've turned it into an idea that can be accepted or denied or debated. Chachma is that step before that, where on a, on a not on a physical way, but it's almost as if you, you see the truth of something. It's, it's, and, it's almost, and it's basically right behind your conscious thought. You're very rarely consciously aware of the chachma. Okay? I'll give you an example where a lot of people make a mistake. Okay? Do we use, do we use the past as a way to predict the future? Just broadly speaking. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you have to figure out how to do that in the right way. Not everything in the past is used, right? But broadly speaking, if we, want to, if we want to anticipate what's going to happen in the future, some way of analyzing the past is the way to figure out what's going to happen in the future, right? That makes sense? We all do that? Okay. How do you know that works? Because it's been proven to work. Oh, because since in the past, we looked at the past to see that the, to predict the future and that seemed to work is a reason to think that that should work. But you're just being circular. You just assume the original thing, right? Because even if it worked in the past, if the thing I doubt is that the past is a good basis to predict the future, then just because that worked in the past doesn't mean I should believe it in the future. And there are many things like this that are so built into the way our minds work that they're almost the background of the mind. That as if our mind has some ability to see the truth of things and it works from there. And what we normally consider to be thinking and analyzing using our intellect is already a second order process. In other words, that the mind is open to the truth in a way that's not really so much intellectual, but just like open and then the truth of things just seems to be beamed into the mind and then we start working from there. And that's why many certain first principles like the fact that the past can be used to predict the future or the transitive property or all sorts of other things, when you try and reflect and ponder themselves and figure out how do you know that or where does that come from, it just seems to just be there in your mind. Like, it's not something that you argue, you, you, come, you have an argument why it should be true. Like, if you really doubted it, there would no be way to get it back. Okay? I'll give you one other example, and then we'll move on. Okay? Is life meaningful? It depends on who you're asking. Well, who would you ask that would say life is not meaningful? Probably someone who's a depressed person. Mm. What are they depressed about? 
their life. And what's missing? The meaning. So then what, what, then what basic assumption are they working off of? That life should be meaningful. And therefore something is wrong with whose life? Heirs. Right? Like, like if you really, like, 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 Every way, like some people embrace the meaning of life. Some people are looking for the meaning of life. Some people mourn the loss of meaning in life. Some people turn the meaning in life to convince everyone else that there's no meaning in life. But there's no one that is just blithely ambivalent to meaning. Like meaning is compelling to your mind. Like you can't get that out. Now where you go from there is very, that's, there's a lot of different ways you go from there. So there are a lot of things like the basic notion of right and wrong, the reliability of past to predict the future, logical consistency, the, 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 the significance of meaning. These things just seem to be present in our minds. And then from those in conjunction with what we experience in the world, we try and build our ideas and our understandings. So what I want you to understand is that chachma, it's not really part of the intellectual process. It's the thing that underlies the intellectual process. It's the, it's the foundation upon which the intellect derives its sense of direction. But what we find to, that we know depends on things that we were taught. We're not born with those ideas. So two things. One, um, the, one not every, Chachma is not, is not universal. I'm using examples of things that are, are universal to all human beings. That's number one. And I, I can, I'll, I'll explain in a minute why it's not universal. Number two, because... Chachma is not the end. Like once you turn something into an idea from your Chachma, even if two people share the same Chachma, the idea that they cultivate from that is, is, is based on what they've experienced, including what they learn. Okay. So it could be that we both have the same intrinsic sense of there's a fundamental rightness and wrongness, but in the culture that I grew up in, I learned to conceptualize that notion differently than you do. And at that point, we have a hard time communicating because the way I've defined what that means to me is very different than what it means to you, even though the ground root of it was the same. Okay? But the other thing is like this, is that chachma, the way that's understood in Hasidus, is that chachma is an openness to the truth. Now, there are layers of truth. We're interested in the ultimate truth, God. But just to give a sense of it, it's the openness to the truth. Well, there's some very low-level truths, such as, and I'll mention a few, Logical consistency, it's, that, that's a truth of reality, okay? The significance of meaning is a truth of reality. The rightness of what is right and the wrongness of what is wrong, those are truths of reality. Most people, regardless of whether they have a holy soul or not, they have enough openness that those truths shine in. And the more open you are, the, the higher and the deeper the truth that can shine into it. And what's the important point about the chachma of the, of, of, of the godly soul is that it's absolute openness, unconstrained openness. 
Whereas the normal human Chachma is open only to a degree and therefore only certain limited truths shine into the soul, such as logical consistency, causality, past predicting the future, um, in basic sense that there is a right and is a wrong, significance of meaning, etc., things like that. So it doesn't mean that we're, we're pre-programmed with this. It's, 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 on the human level, it's a, it's a faculty like intelligence and like strength. And the more open someone is, the more of these truths shine into them. And a person can actually do things to strengthen that over time. Right? Um, what we're interested in now is the unconstrained chachma of the godly soul. And is what he explains. He says, note, the entomological composition of the word chachma is the two words kayach and ma, which means the potentiality of what is, or the power to accept something as it is, the truth of it without any, any um, preconceived notions, any limitations, any constraints, which is not yet comprehended or understood or grasped intellectually. And consequently, there is vested in it the light of the ain't so blessed is he who cannot be comprehended by any thought. So if you had unlimited chachma, an unconstrained chachma that was totally open, then God, the truth of God could be there. And what does that mean? Human beings, as opposed to the godly soul, our chachma is limited in the sense that we are only open to truths that in principle, allow us to function better. So what are, notice all the truths that I mentioned. What do they all have in common? Logical consistency, sequence of meaning, the truth of, of morality as a basic principle. What do they all ha have in common? How would life look if you acted without any sense of logical consistency? without any sense that the past could be used to predict the future, without any sense that there's a real difference between what's right and what's wrong, without any sense that there's any, supposed to be any meaning to anything, how would your life look if you, if you lived without any senses of any of those things? You'd be chaotic. Okay, and what if you had a whole society of creatures like that who, who are free will, so they don't operate on pure instinct? Then what would happen? Anarchy? No. Anarchists would be very upset. It's what most of us call anarchy. The anarchists would say, that's not anarchy. That's, that, 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 that's craziness. That, that's... Anarchy, anarchists believe that, that people can arrange society without having a top-down hierarchy, but that you would still have to have order, just the order is generated from below. It's an interesting political theory. But you, what most people call anarchy. It, it, it would be, it would, it would be, it would be, it, it would be untenable. It would, it would, it would collapse, right? We couldn't function as, as individuals. We couldn't function as groups. So why is it that our souls are open to those truths? Because on some level, our souls—I'm talking here about the animal soul, the human soul—is aware that these that these things can be useful to it in some way, shape, or form. So. A human's chachma is limited by what will ultimately help guide me to live in a better way, to be more functional, to enhance my personal well-being or the well-being of my group. Those are the truths that our 
human minds are open to. So it is a limited chachma, which means we're open to things that we don't yet understand, but on the condition that we eventually could understand and utilize them. What's different about the chachma and the godly soul is that it is absolutely 100% open to the truth. Now, since Hashem is unknowable, Hashem is unthinkable, Hashem is ununderstandable, and just to make this point clear, does Hashem understand himself? Yes or no? Yes. No. Let me ask you a different question. Does Hashem know what size shoe he wears? What his high school mascot was when he went to high school? Or more controversially, what his mother's name was? Does he know those things? No, because we can't put Hashem into a humanly context like that. Okay, but, but is, is that about us or is that about the objective truth? Is it that we can't or he doesn't actually have a shoe size and he didn't go to high school? Plus, if he went to high school, it wouldn't have been one of those cheesy high schools with a mask. I would have been back in the olden days. Because God is old. No, I'm kidding. Um, th- does God have a mother? Okay. So saying God doesn't know those things is not, a, is not a limitation on God. It's just saying, well, those things aren't applicable to God. God is unlike anything else. Well, if other things are understandable and he's unlike anything else, then he's not understandable. If he's not understandable, there's nothing to understand. So it's not that you're not smart enough. There's nothing to understand. In fact, the Alter Rebbe later in time uses the following analogy. He says, if someone were to tell you that this idea is so subtle, it's so profound, you can't hold it with your hand. You'd say, like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Subtle, like, you don't hold ideas with your hand. Like, that, that doesn't mean anything. So he says, saying you can't understand God is like saying you can't hold an idea with your hand. It, it's the wrong thing. God is not understandable. So it's not a matter of your intelligence. Your intelligence, intelligence can't grasp God any more than your hand could grasp God. Or, or the Al-Tarebbe's grandson, the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzimach Tzedek, said that trying to understand God with your intellect, or with any intellect, trying to understand God with intellect, is like trying to study with your foot. If you put your foot in front of the page, will you learn that way? Because the foot doesn't relate to ideas. Well, ideas aren't a good way of connecting to God. God is not a concept to be understood. He's not a feeling to be felt. He's not an object to be touched. He's not a taste to be tasted. He's not a sound to be heard. What is he? What is God? So the answer is the only thing that could possibly be receptive to God is something that's okay with something being just what it is without having to try and grab hold of it. And that's Chachmah but not the human chachma, because human chachma is open, but with ulterior motives, 
with limits, with constraints. I'm open to things that will ultimately, at least on an unconscious level, I have a sense, will lead me to some kind of higher functioning. But the chachma in the godly soul is an openness to the truth of what God is without any ulterior motives, without any other objective, without any constraints. And therefore, the truth of God resides in Chachma. Because Chachma doesn't try to understand, and Chachma doesn't care about understanding. Which is not like the normal human Chachma. It's open to what you don't understand, because ultimately it helps you understand better. That's human Chachma. That's not godly soul Chachma. Now, what is the altar basically arguing? Is your intelligence a good way to strengthen your relationship with God? Doesn't sound like it. Now, those of you who are here at the beginning of chapter 18, remember how he started chapter 18? That he's saying some people, their minds are not really equipped to deal with profound abstract things and make them personally relevant. Have we kind of eradicated that problem? If God is not grasped with the intellect, but with the openness of Chachma, well then I guess you, the degree of your intellectual powers and how deeply profound abstract notions motivate you personally just no longer relevant. That's not what we're driving at, is it? We're driving at something else entirely, something that's, I'll put it like this, something that, in a, in a culture that worships intellectual acumen might be something that's belittled, something that's looked down on, something that's not treated in high regard. And the Al-Tabba is actually shifting the focus, saying that's actually should be taken more seriously. Okay. And what is that? Hence, all Jews, even the women and the illiterate. Now, why does he include the women with the illiterate? Women weren't always um, weren't always given the opportunity for Torah learning. Correct. Right. Women, in other words, throughout the majority of Jewish history, women were generally not educated outside of the home in any scholarly way. What do I mean? There was no such thing as going to school for women, and even when they studied at home, their knowledge of Judaism was passed down mother to daughter, grandmother to granddaughter, aunt to niece. So women knew very well the laws of running a, a, a home according to halacha because there was a practical training in that, right? Often sometimes better than their husbands. But in terms of what we call nowadays book learning and scholarship, that was just not really a part of Jewish culture for the most part. Now, I just would like to, we have a few minutes left. So I want to just tell you something interesting about that. The, the tradition in the family of the Chabad Rebbeim, which they eventually moved out of the family into the wider circle of Chassidim, was that women should be educated in a scholarly manner. So for instance, the Alter Rebbe's oldest daughter, um, he said discourses for her privately, um, like she was, she was she, in other words, she had private lessons in Hasidus 
that even the successor of Chabad, the Mittler Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe's oldest son, was not invited to, and he had to get like secondhand notes or like put his ear, door, um, ear by the door, that she was considered to be an exceptionally um, profound scholar, and, and the Alter Rebbe taught her personally. And we have traditions like this in, in the Chabad family. In other words, and the, the fourth Chabad Rebbe actually said that the proper attitude for a chassid is that when it comes to scholarship, that he shouldn't treat um, educating his daughters differently than educating his sons in terms of these things about knowing about God and knowing about the truths of Judaism, et cetera, et cetera. So while that was the generic culture, already from the early generations of Chabad, that was not the view of the Rebbein themselves, and they slowly started to spread that idea into the Hasidim. Um, so in the Chabad families, when they had daughters, they would, they would hire tutors to teach them. Um, they encouraged their Hasidim to do likewise. And eventually, you know, we have like girls' schools and stuff like that. Um, but my favorite story is the following story. So I'll tell you the story. Has anyone heard of Rav Moshe Feinstein? Okay. So Rav Moshe Feinstein, he was a, a great halachic authority, not Chabad, not, not a Hasid, but friendly, friendly to, to Hasidim. So his, in, in one of his halachic works, there's a, there's a little bit of family history printed in the beginning. And there's a story of his, I don't know if it's his great-great-grandmother, his great-great-grandmother, some number of grandmothers ago that um, she lived in a small town in, in Russia, okay? And she was very brilliant and very inquisitive. And her father didn't know what to do because like in those days, there was no like educational system for girls. And um, so in those days, the, the towns would have a rabbi and the rabbi, his job was, if you wanted to know whether the chicken was kosher, he would tell you the chicken was kosher. You wanted to know whether the mikvah was up to standards, he would tell you the mikvah was up to standards, right? But he didn't, he was basic, he, 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 was, he was there to consult for halachic rulings. That was what the rabbi of the town did. And then you would have what someone was called a magid, and the magid would give inspiring talks, sermons, to uplift the people. So, and the, he, the magid of his town was a very wise and man who had a very tremendous reputation, although... And he had a lot of disciples and followers. And he wasn't necessarily a disciple of this Magid, but he was the Magid of the town and he had a good reputation. We figured he would go to the, this Magid and ask him what to do with his daughter, who was quite brilliant and inquisitive, precocious. And um, so the Magid investigated and saw that this girl was actually um, quite gifted. And so he said, well, the best thing for her to do would be to attend school. But since there's no girls' schools, we'll make a little mechitza in, 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 the, in the school. Now, in those days, a school was just a room in someone's house where you had a per, one person teaching like four or five or maybe 10 kids at a time. Okay, that's what a school was. So the same school where my grandson goes, um, she'll sit and they'll put a little mechitza for modesty purposes because boys and girls shouldn't go to school together. And she'll go to school and she'll learn. She'll learn Chumash and she'll learn Mishnah and she'll learn these things. Um, the name of the town where, where his, his grandmother lived, this little girl lived, where she was named Lyajna. And the Magid of that town was the Alter Rebbe. And so when the Alter Rebbe's um, grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, was going to Cheder, was going to school, there was actually a girl sitting in, sitting in the side of the room with, with a little mechitza for, for modesty purposes, also learning. Because the Chabad Rebbe felt that although this is maybe how it has been, there's no reason why women should be deprived of this knowledge. So when he's describing this here, this is 
descriptive rather than prescriptive. So women and then men who, who are supposed to learn but often didn't have for circumstantial reasons like economics didn't learn. Nonetheless, we see that these people who are not learned believe in God. Now, what is he trying to demonstrate to us that they believe in God? So I'll, 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 I'll finish the sentence now quickly and then next class we'll elaborate on it. Since faith is beyond understanding and comprehension, and what do we just learn? That every Jew has Chachma and Chachma is beyond comprehension. So Chachma and faith go together. So the faith of the illiterate and the uneducated is not coming from a place of ignorance. It's actually a manifestation of the Chachma of their soul. That's, that's what he's trying to describe, that since Chachma is beyond understanding, it also is reflected in people that lack understanding. It doesn't depend on understanding. And so the faith and conviction of the person who hasn't studied and hasn't learned and doesn't understand any theological principles, nonetheless, their faith is no less weak because the faith is not connected to bina, to understanding. It's a manifestation of the chachm of their soul. Now, that's obviously a big idea, and there's a lot more details that he, he elaborates on this for a while. We're going to continue that next week. But I want to stop here in case anyone has any questions on what I said so we don't like cut you off at 10 with your unasked questions. If you don't have questions, then we can just sit here for five minutes in awkward silence. That's also okay. I, so I'm feeling very overwhelmed. That's good. So, I'm, so I guess my question is, who is this book for? Because I'm not, you know, I, you know, I have some Torah background and I'm still sitting and I have like different types of education and I'm still sitting here scratching my head. So I'm wondering who this book really is for. So we have to differentiate two things between the content of the book and the style of the book. Okay. So the content of the book is for everyone. The style of the book, um, in other words, who could read this book without as someone helping them guide them through it? Um, you would have to be like a rabbinic scholar on the level of the author. But I would just like to point out that that's just following in the same tradition as God. He wrote something called the Chumash. You've heard of that? Who's that book for? Everyone. Who's really capable of reading it without guidance and really understanding what it's supposed to be talking about? The author, God. Everyone else needs an oral tradition. So the, 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 the ideas as there's, and the author actually writes in his introduction that he's writing this book with the, with the intention that people who are taught how to study it should then teach other people. Now, um, there is, there, 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 there's different ways of study. There's different ways of studying something. Okay. There's an ideal way of studying something. We're not going to do the ideal way of studying because no one has the patience for that. We're doing a, a, a compromised version of studying. The compromised version of studying is not dumbing down an idea so that it's so easily digestible, it seems intuitive but not going too deep into an idea 
that we get lost in 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 the subtleties but trying to create an exposure to the ideas and the ground that that's one thing and ground that exposure in the text so you can come back and say okay i learned about those ideas which i didn't fully understand in this text on this page here and so if i want to deepen my understanding i can i, I can ground that i know where to go back to so if your expectation is that I'm coming to a class, I'm supposed to walk away and it's all like packaged and I figured it all out, that's exactly what I don't want you to do. I want you, oh, there's this whole topic and I kind of understand a little bit of what's going on there and I would like to understand more and I know where that information is grounded. Like what book speaks about it, where things, and like I can come back. So rather than be floating around in my mind somewhere, like I know, chapter 18, we're speaking about the godly soul. We're speaking about, it's intrinsic love of God. We're speak, right? I know what that chapter speaks about. And I have questions and I have confusion. And that's how real learning works. And even if you're someone as great as, you know, the greatest Torah scholars, that process doesn't end. So yes, there are other kinds of classes. What you do is you, pro the, the teacher processes the information to the point that the student walks through the a sense they've understood it all to the point that it was almost intuitive. And there's a place for that. But it also doesn't allow you to, to, to um, engage with the ideas because you're always getting, it's like processed foods, right? You're not doing any home cooking yourself. Now, the ideal form of learning was that I would make all of you read these, this chapter and memorize what it said so that you could repeat it over in your own words and only then we would have class on it. But that requires a level of patience and dedication that most people don't have. But if you really want to master anything, the first thing to do is to, is to absorb without understanding. And then once you have that, then to go back and try and analyze and, and understand. Um, but we don't, you know, most people don't do that anymore. So mo we're doing this kind of compromise thing. But overwhelmed is good. But there needs to be a level of managed overwhelm. Okay, there's different techniques for that. One technique is to take the text that we learn and on your own, without the class, after the class, just go back over and read and try and explain it to yourself. Not try and regurgitate what I said. Try and see how much of it you actually see in the words of the text yourself. And that helps ground you, okay? So you're right, it is overwhelming and that, that's not, that's, not um, that's, that, that's, that's intentional, although fine tuning the degree of overwhelming is hard in any environment and on Zoom it's especially hard because I, I can't read people's body language as well as in real life, which is a very important skill for the teacher to figure out how much to go deeper and how much to you know, move on and whatever. So I hope that's satisfying. All right. But yeah, I would encourage you to try and start the chapter again from the beginning of the chapter. Read and try and, as if you were giving a class to someone based on your own understanding and see how well that goes. You'd be surprised at what you know and also surprised at what your own questions you come up with that way. All right. I will see you guys next week. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
بچه 